This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clote, and here's what's coming up. Most importantly, it takes us a step away from a peaceful resolution of the conflict by siding with one side. And it'll possibly extend this war and extend this Western Star issue as a problem for years longer because we're not closer to peace. We're further away from peace with this move. That was William Lawrence, professor of political science and international relations at the American University in Washington on Spain, deciding to back Morocco's proposal to grant some autonomy to the Western Sahara. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The Ethiopian government and rebels in the embattled Tigray region have declared a truce to allow humanitarian aid to reach millions in need. Aid to the region has been limited for months due to the ongoing conflict and accusations that both sides are blocking roads. Some experts say humanitarian organizations may find it challenging to reach all people in the country's north. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. After months of little or no access to millions in need, humanitarian agencies will have a chance to distribute food, water and medicine in northern Ethiopia. Some aid organizations are still studying the government's statement on the ceasefire in the Tigray region to determine how much access they will have. In a statement to VOA, Oxfam International County Director Gazahain Kadebe Karbehena called on all warring parties to honour the truce and allow aid agencies unfettered access to the communities. However, Hassan Kananji, the head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies, does not believe the government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, will give aid groups a free hand. Both sides, he says, may fear exposing human rights abuses. They may be afraid in certain instances that humanitarian organizations may have access to some of the evidence of the crimes that were committed during the war. And so I do not think they're going to have a free access to every part they want or to every human soul, you know, who's going to be in need. But they, to the extent that they have some access, I think it, that is something positive. The Ethiopian government launched a military operation against the Tigray People's Liberation Front rebel group in November 2020. The 16-month-old conflict has claimed the lives of tens of thousands and displaced millions. The conflict spread to other parts of the country, and at one point, rebel groups threatened to march to the capital to topple Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. Obang Metho, a social justice activist, welcomes the temporary hold to the conflict. There are so many people who are suffering, in, uh, not only in the Tigray region, but throughout Ethiopia, in Afar regions, and then in Amara regions. Uh, those people definitely are needing an assistance. So the truth is not only between the, what's happening in the Tigray region alone. I think it's what's happening in Ethiopia. So for sure that uh, my, I hope that uh, it will lead to helping the, uh, the suffering of the people. Hananji says the pressure exerted on the Ethiopian government and the rebel groups has paid off. In part is in response to the growing calls by international community, especially the West, to allow humanitarian access to the Tigray region. It's also partly informed by the growing confidence of the Abiy Ahmed's government uh, in its ability to contain the Tigray. They no longer see them as an existential threat like they saw them just a couple months ago. The aid groups estimate at least 9.4 million people in Ethiopia need urgent humanitarian aid after fleeing their farms and homes due to conflict. 
Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. It's the day before Zimbabwe holds by-elections to fill council and parliamentary seats that have become vacant since the last national balloting in 2018. Seen as a litmus test for public sentiment ahead of next year's national balloting, interest and tensions have been growing as the country emerges from COVID-19 lockdown rules, tries to kickstart the morose economy and deals with government efforts to clamp down on dissent. From Harare reporter Kutzaez Vanavashi has more details. These are arguably the biggest by-elections so far. Due to massive parliamentary and council recalls of representatives as factional battles rage within the opposition. Nigel Nyamutumbu is with the Media Alliance of Zimbabwe. By any measure, the stage is set for the March 26 by-elections, whose campaign period has been characterized by heightened political tensions, as well as interests uh, by the generality of Zimbabweans, judging by the numbers that have been turning up at uh, political rallies, and also how the media has set the narrative and agenda around these elections. Daniel Chikudu is the editor of Open Palace W, an online publication that has been covering the by-elections campaign. The environment is a bit okay at the moment. Going into the election itself now, we've got an issue where ZEC has taken long to accredit journalists. Even though the journalists submitted their applications well on time, the commission, I think, has taken time. I don't know why. Uh, up to today, people are still getting their accreditations. Uh, some of the applications they did, I think, about three weeks ago. Chigudo says he worries the delay risks coverage of voting in rural areas as those without accreditation will be unable to travel. Nyamutumbu says they have been worried by fake news being peddled online. There's also been quite uh, an information disorder, uh, particularly on uh, social media, wherein the disinformation, misinformation and malinformation uh, have been of concern, uh, particularly as uh, these political parties are jostling to get uh, the much-needed public uh, opinion and, and to drive uh, that as such. Uh, there have been few incidences of violence against journalists uh, perpetrated by both uh, the state and uh, by some uh, uh, political parties, uh, which we have stood uh, to, to condemn. So going forward, as we lead up to these elections, our demands remain uh, clear. Uh, we need uh, the media to take its position to pay its watch to grow to hold the electoral commission to account. The build-up to the elections has been relatively less violent with previous voting, but with signs of disorganization. Some parties have yet to get the consolidated voters' roll, and some voters have not been told which polling stations to visit. The main opposition has been crying foul, citing election manipulation in favor of the ruling parties and OPF. For VOA, this is Kudzai Junavashi from Harare. The Anti-Corruption Bureau in Malawi says reports of corruption have jumped in the southern African country. In its annual report released this week, the Bureau says it recorded 1,217 complaints compared with 642 complaints the previous year, a 90% increase. Lamek Masina reports for VOA from Blantyre. The report says the number of complaints 
comes close to those the Anti-Corruption Bureau recorded during the so-called Kashkid scandal in 2012 and 2013. During that time, some $32 million was siphoned from government coffers, allegedly through dubious construction contracts involving public officials and business executives. However, the report notes the number of cases started to decline between 2014 and 2019. The recent jump in corruption complaints occurred even after the government boosted its funding to fight corruption. Moses Nkandawire, chairperson of the National Anti-Corruption Alliance, says the report proves the Malawi government has made little progress in fighting corruption. Uh, given the fact that uh, of late we've seen, we've read, and we've held a number of cases related to corruption, particularly not just general corruption per se, but serious and organized corruption and involving senior people in our society and some Malawians who come from elsewhere. In January, Malawi President Lazarus Chakwera dissolved his cabinet due to charges of graft against three of his ministers. Martha Chizuma, director of Malawi's Anti-Corruption Bureau, says the increase in complaints simply show that many Malawians now believe the Bureau is capable of fighting corruption. There's now more confidence in the Bureau, such that people now are feeling motivated to report because probably they believe that there will be an action taken. Chizuma says the whistleblower initiative launched by the rights group Human Rights Defenders Coalition played a big role in improving people's confidence in the Bureau as did the number of cases prosecuted by the Bureau. What the report is saying is that we had 67% completion of the cases that were prosecuted, successive prosecution. So that's quite good comparatively, but we could do better. The 2020 Transparency International Corruption Perception Index ranked Malawi 129th place in its ranking of 180 countries, with those having the least amount of corruption at the top. The Worldwide Governance Indicators for 2020 also rated Malawi poorly with a ranking of 39.42 out of 209 countries in the world. Lamek Masina for VOA News. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has relaxed some of the measures aimed at curbing the spread of COVID-19 as daily infections, deaths and hospitalizations have declined. Scientists have also reported that up to 80% of the population has gained some form of immunity, either natural or through vaccination. Thuso Kumalo reports from Johannesburg. In his opening address at the conference held at the Santin Convention Center in Johannesburg, President Ramaphosa assured companies that their investments in South Africa will be secure. I call on all investors, entrepreneurs and business people to be part of this journey, for we have embarked on a journey of reform, a journey of recovery, and a journey of rebuilding this country brick by brick, street by street, and infrastructure project by infrastructure project. He said the government is doing its best to reduce the cost of doing business, protect property rights, and entrench the rule of law. Several companies from within and outside South Africa made a variety of commitments to invest in the country's economy. Akinubi Adesina, president of the African Development Bank, was the first to announce a pledge from his institution. The African Development Bank 
strongly supports South Africa's investment conference. I am therefore delighted to announce that the African Development Bank will commit 42.5 billion rands, that's 2.8 billion dollars, to South Africa over the next five years. But investors also expressed concern at the inability of South Africa's energy utility ESCOM to produce enough energy required to power the country's expanding economy. Busiswe Mavuso, Chief Executive Officer of Business Leadership South Africa, told VOA that reliable energy will be key for the desired economic growth. Without energy, you don't have investment. And without investment, you don't have a growing economy. And without the economy growing, then you don't have jobs. So we therefore are going to have to shift our focus away from ESCOM. They are really going to have to bring in the private sector a little bit more and look at what solutions can actually be arrived at through the private-public partnership. Others also expressed concern over rising anti-foreign sentiment that has seen some groups of locals invading some businesses demanding that foreign nationals leave their jobs for locals. Some experts have pegged South Africa's unemployment rate at 46%, which include those who have given up looking for work. The government is hoping that the investment drive will yield jobs and a decent life for its many unemployed citizens. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. As Spain decided to back the Moroccan proposal to grant some autonomy to the Western Sahara, the Polisario Front has criticized Spain's shifting stance. The independence-seeking Sawari said the decision is a grave error that yields to Morocco's leverage over the control of migrants crossing into Europe. They also accused Madrid of taking sides in a dispute that for decades the Spanish government said could only be settled in a referendum to be held under the United Nations. William Lawrence, professor of political science and international relations at the American University in Washington, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi whether Spain's backing of the Moroccan autonomy plan could weaken the Polisario's demand for an independence referendum. Yes, and it's significant. Polisario is already independent and they control 22% of the territory, which made the U.S. recognition problematic because, you know, Morocco controls about 78% of the territory and the U.S. said, well, you now have sovereignty over 100% without really sorting through the implications of what happens to that 22% of the territory controlled by an independent Polisario, an independent Saharan Arab Democratic Republic. But it's significant now that three of the four most important European nations are symbolically siding with the Moroccan autonomy plan or more, and Polisario is rightly condemned the reversal of the French position. They identified the right issue, the concerns over migration. But this wasn't just the Spanish position previously. It was the position of every country on planet Earth except Morocco uh, prior to the U.S. recognition in 2020, that the solution had to be at the U.N. So what does this mean for, for Polisario? It means more war. Of course, the ceasefire ended in November of 2020, and there's a low-grade intensity conflict going on, which has killed about 24 soldiers on the two sides and some civilians and injured others. And there's almost daily rocket attacks. This is an act of war that doesn't get better by the Spanish move. You know, what does it mean for Spain? It means less uncontrolled sudden flows of migrants, possibly less Algerian gas, possibly more trade with Morocco. But most importantly, it takes us a step away from a peaceful resolution of the conflict by siding with one side. And 
it'll possibly extend this war and extend this Western Sahara issue as a problem for years longer because we're not closer to peace. We're further away from peace with this move. In recent years, the prospect of an independence referendum has waned, and even the United Nations has ceased referring to a vote, speaking instead of seeking a realistic, mutually acceptable solution based on a compromise. The European Union is supporting the efforts of the UN Secretary General for a just, realistic, pragmatic, lasting, and mutually acceptable political solution to the Western Sahara issue. What's your take on that? All of that's true, and it's a stark reality. We're in this moment right now where we're talking about defending democracy, but we're muted on democracy in Tunisia and some other African countries and in Western Sahara. We're talking about human rights in Europe, but we're muted uh, to some degree in Africa. We're talking about the rights of migrants going into Europe from Ukraine, but we're muted on the migrant crisis of tens of millions of internally displaced in Africa. And we're talking about territorial integrity of Ukraine without the territorial integrity of a country in Africa. So it's a it's a double standard. We have raging conflicts in Africa right now, which are second or third order problems to some degree for the European Union and the UN. And that's true for the migrant issue and territorial integrity. Now, the UN as an institution is dependent on its members. And so if the members don't want to go in a direction, then the UN won't. You to a large degree. But if the members start abandoning UN principles, core principles like human rights and and territorial integrity, then it becomes harder and harder over time for UN to defend principles everywhere. And then the strategy enunciated by that quotation can backfire. Because if you want a just solution, you can't get it with less justice, right? If you want a realistic solution, then find one that represents both sides, not one side. It's unrealistic to go with one side solution. That's that's the opposite of pragmatic. It's the opposite of lasting. And by definition, that's the opposite of mutually acceptable. So the UN needs to pursue its own ideals, its own principles, and even the language of what it wants. Because in this case, as in all cases, the pragmatic solution is one where both sides' interests are represented, not just one side. That was William Lawrence, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the American University in Washington, speaking with viewer senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi. On the occasion of World Tuberculosis Day, Nigeria says cases of the disease increased by nearly 50% last year. At a summit to heighten awareness of the disease, health authorities say to tackle the epidemic, they need to close a huge funding gap. Timothy Obiezo reports from Abuja. At least 200 people attended the ministerial briefing in Abuja first day to mark World TB Day. Authorities said the event was to create awareness about renewed spread of tuberculosis in Nigeria. Health authorities say confirmed cases jumped from about 138,000 in 2020 to more than 207,000 cases last year. Health Minister Osagie Ehanire says the actual number of cases is probably higher. There is still a significant gap between the estimated and the notified cases. The 207,000 that I spoke of represent only 45% of what we estimate. Health authorities say the increase was as a result of heightened surveillance and that Nigeria was one of the few countries in the world to sustain its TB detection program despite COVID-19 disruptions. Authorities say there is still a huge funding shortage when it comes to tuberculosis interventions. Only 31% of funding needed for TB control in 2020 was achieved. 
Rachel Goldstein is the officer for HIV and TB control for the U.S. Agency for International Development. This year's World TB uh, Day theme, Invest to End TB, Save Lives, is a call to action that resonates with the most critical needs of Nigeria's national TB program. We know that the program currently has a significant funding gap, and that's something we've got to work together to advocate for additional resources. Every year, about 590,000 new cases of tuberculosis occur in Nigeria, and around 200,000 people die. Experts say apart from low awareness, stigmatization is preventing early reporting of the disease. Joyce, a girl, was diagnosed with tuberculosis in 2019, but only began her treatment late last year. She's now helping to warn others about the dangers of the disease. For me, one way I would help to give more to the society is to talk to someone about CB. And another way is to also do my own publicity on social media. Tuberculosis is a bacterial disease that affects the lungs. Nigeria has the sixth highest TB burden in the world and has the most cases in Africa. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. In a bid to resolve an often deadly conflict over cross-border cattle wrestling, Botswana and Zimbabwe have agreed to attach electronic ear tags on livestock in communities along their border. The two countries' presidents met in Victoria Falls early this month to discuss the matter. From Habaroni, reporter Mkodisi Dube has the details. After the bi-national commission meeting, the two neighbors agreed to set up a joint committee to address the issue of cattle rustling. One of the new measures adopted was to electronically tag all livestock in the affected areas. Botswana and Zimbabwe share a border stretching more than 800 kilometers. Farmers on both sides of the border have welcomed the initiative. Zimbabwean cattle ranger Mkrupe Dube says the use of electronic ear tags is overdue. Uh, people lose a lot of livestock unnecessarily. So it's really about time technology caught up with uh, the needs of the people. And right now the needs of livestock farmer is to be protected from cattle rustling. Uh, and uh, if electronic tags can do that, that will be a very, very much welcome uh, intervention. But Dube says there is concern over the implementation and the cost of the program. However, the question therefore remains in terms of the uh, operationalization of that kind of intervention. How practical uh, is, is, is it? Uh, and also, how affordable is it? We know that uh, these uh, tracking technologies are mostly based on satellite technology. And uh, because of satellite technology, they tend to be uh, expensive. Botswana President Mukwetsi Masisi expects the new joint committee to deal with the challenges and yield results. It is pleasing that we have agreed to establish a specific joint framework for cooperation between Botswana and Zimbabwe to facilitate and harmonize our efforts in the fight against livestock rustling. In addition, we have agreed to establish a joint committee comprising all government agencies of the two countries that are represented at the affected areas. The committee will coordinate our efforts to address issues of livestock rustling and other cross-border crimes. 
cattle rustlers from Zimbabwe reportedly use violence to steal animals, then slaughter them and sell the meat to butchers. President Masisi says some villagers have been forced to abandon their homes, fleeing from the armed rustlers. For VOA, this is Mkondi Sidube in Haboroni, Botswana. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight at Peter Clote in Washington. For all latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America.